Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Zoom platform. This episode is brought to you by the Ford Foundation, and we are a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. Today, we are continuing our Detroit candidate series. Midterms are this year, and we want to do our best to bring candidates directly to you. A race that we are paying special attention to is the 13th congressional race that currently has nine Democratic candidates in the field. Our interviews will culminate in Canada debate in partnership with Detroit Action before the primaries in August. Joining us today is candidate for the 13th congressional seat, John Conyers III. John, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Just, how are you? How are you? Good, how are you? Well, how are you? I'm well, just for the record. Um, I, I, I've been letting uh, the newspapers know this and everyone else, like I, I, I I recognize that people refer to my father as John Conyers, but he was John Conyers Jr. I have never gone by John Conyers III. That is something that the news has put on me. Oh. So let me be clear. Like when I was in school with uh, Camille, I wasn't, nobody called me John Conyers III. I was just John Conyers. So just- So you're just the original. To, okay, you took no, back no, that I'm original. Not, I'm not, no, I understand. I'm, I'm just teasing you. I'm no, teasing no, you. I'm not the original. <laughs> That's my grandfather. In no, fact, I understand. Here's, a fun, here's a fun fact about it. Uh, which is funny. When my father first ran for office, my grandfather was so well known in the UAW. Even my dad at 35 was referred to as little Johnny Conyers when he was running for United States Congress. Yeah. So I don't, I don't take offense to it. I just have never gone by that. So yeah. Well, for the record, we, we will correct it yes. for the record. Joining us on Authentically Detroit is John Conyers. John, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank, um, thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. <laughs> Donna, it's been a, a crazy week and weekend. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, um, as any listener who listens to last week's interviews will know, um, I got sick on the island at Mackinac, which was really upsetting to me. Um, I thought it might be allergies, but it looks like I may have had a touch of COVID, but it passed me by and got my husband. So Man. prayers to Kevin because he has been, um, you know, a little under the weather. Luckily, there are uh, medications and he has um he has he he got he's got both vaccines and the booster so he is not as sick as he could be but yeah it, it hit our household and then in the midst of that we had on saturday an annual meeting at an open house <laughs> um and i was like i don't need to go but i tested and i tested and i tested and the cdc says that if you test and you don't have symptoms test negative and don't have symptoms wear a good mask and so that's what i did so that i could welcome people to the opening of the stout meyer 
And of course you were well, there. Congratulations uh, on that. Thank Anna. you. Thank you. It was a really, really meaningful event to um, all of the staff at ECN. They worked really hard while I was at Mackinac. We worked really hard up until then to try to have a successful event in creating a home for people in the community. So John, wow. you have to come by the Stoudmire and see what we're doing on the east side. Absolutely. I've, I've been over on the east side a little bit, but um, I need to absolutely, you know, get down there a little bit more often. I've been trying to, you know, this district is very, very large. So I've been trying to um, trying to see as many people as possible. One of the things that um, I heard often when my father was representing uh, these, these municipalities is that, you know, it's not just Detroit's district. So I've been trying to make sure I convey that and, 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 and show that to uh, what I hope are my future, who I hope are my future or future constituents. Absolutely. Now there is a 13th congressional district office in our building. Um, occupied by the current, it's a community outreach office. And um, there's an open invitation, should you win, for you to keep that office open <laughs> in the community to provide outreach services. Um, let me, let me give you, I, I want to give a little um, um, shout out. You know, the kinds of things that people get help with is I'm going to Sweden on Friday. And I was having a lot of difficulty getting into the passport office to resolve some last minute issues in my passport. And I contacted the 13th, 13th Congressional District Office, and I have an appointment on Wednesday. I want to say that having people use their, um, their, their political capital to help ordinary people in our community is really what these district offices make matter. So although you are all through the district, we certainly hope that we're one of the places that you choose to visit um, on the east side of Detroit. <laughs> How was your weekend? Um, Orlando? Uh, it was, it was, it was jam packed. Um, really good. You know, being, being with you guys over at the Stoudemire, having the opportunity to chat it up with Valencia uh, Stoudemire um, at the ECN annual meeting and also just running into some old friends, ran into Eric DeWicke and Maggie DeSantis, Daniel North. Daniel was also a Mackinac. Um, just uh, and then meeting some of the new the newer staff at EC and it was a, it was a real treat it was a real treat to be to be there I got to see my old friend Mason uh, when I was uh, you know doing my thing with Radio One and Mildred Gattis you know we got cool so that was cool um, and then Sunday and then date night you know me and baby Saturday night we tried yeah, to keep it you were gone all week right I was gone all week so I couldn't oh, skip better, out on date night uh, so we had day night and Sunday uh, we were together um, as well and so it was it was a good weekend and it was a, a restful one and I'm happy to be back I'm actually excited to be back to work um, and be back on the podcast and interview John I can't wait to get yeah. into his plans a little later on uh, John how's the day finding you it's, it's, it's going well give me one second all right okay. so uh, it is time for Hot Takes, where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. For Hot Takes, feds partner with Detroit to reduce gun violence in high crime neighborhoods. This is featured in BridgeDetroit.com. Donna, what say you? Well, you know, um, this is really focused on the shot spotter um, technology. And the feds um, led by Don Eisen is working with the Detroit Police Department and saying that um, they are planning to expand the use of ShotSpotter to um, help drive down the number of murders in Detroit like they have in um, districts, um, precincts eight and nine. And they do give some good statistics that show that um, the murders in those districts dropped. Um, yesterday afternoon, my husband Kevin's 
cousin was shot and killed laying in bed in her grandmother's house on the east side of Detroit. Um, someone fired in the back of the house. And, um, you know, on the one hand, the theoretical me starts talking about data and all that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, an 11 year old girl was shot dead in her bed. And I certainly hope they find the criminals and we do a better job of tracking it because um, life is too precious. And I think what this brought home to me is the seriousness of the conversation. It's not just these mass murders that take place where everybody should be outraged, but it's happening in our community on a far too regular basis and ordinary people are being killed. And so I think that there's this natural tension between wanting to track and be able to trace and hold murderers accountable and wanting to protect civil rights. And as Black Americans, we're sort of at this crossroads. We want to make sure that both things are in place. And yeah. I really want to talk to the congressman because I know that, or I'm sorry, the congressional con candidate, John Kindness, because I know that you uh, received an endorsement from some folks um, that really are also seeking to address some of these issues. So we'll talk about that a little bit later in the questions and answers. But what gets to me is the real, um, the, the fact that there are no easy answers. Yeah, I mean, this is a part, this is a program uh, on part of the U.S. attorneys It's called uh, Project Safe Neighborhoods. It's a partnership with uh, the Detroit Police Department, Mayor Mike Duggan, and the Wayne County Prosecutor. What, what they're essentially saying, Donna, is that if uh, uh, people are caught with firearms in the 8th and ninth precincts, which are the highest crime hotspots in the city of Detroit, that they will automatically be prosecuted federally, right? I think the, I think the tension that comes in is this, this need and this selling of the, the shot spotter technology to city council and to the rest of the citizens in the city of Detroit. Um, if this technology um, is is working, show show us the data, and that's essentially what City Council um, is saying right now. You know, there is another contract on the table to expand ShotSpotter in the millions, right? Yeah. Um, and City Council is like, well, where is the data? Where is the efficacy of of this this type of technology? And so, you know, Alea Harvey Quinn frames it, you know, for me in the best way in and carrying the tension of our right to feel safe in where we live, uh, but also um, pushing up against um, uh, the encroachment upon our civil rights when we can end up potentially under a complete surveillance state. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is this is something we gotta keep talking about because it is- if, if, I, if, if I may really quickly, I think, um, not only, obviously in our community, we, we wrestle with a tremendous amount of violence, not only uh, in some neighborhoods, but also, um, you know, on the television, on Twitter, um, you know, we have instances like Buffalo, hate crimes, we got Dylan Roof, and, and violence against black people, not only committed by uh, black people, but from other races is, is a tale as, to, as old as this country. But I do think that we have to, get away from uh, the notion that um, uh, criminal punishment is the answer when we know that funding programs is the answer. Funding education, funding our community centers, funding social programs. It is not, it is not, the answer to everything is not, hey, send people to prison. The answer to the things is to provide the resources so someone does not fall into 
the life or is not that doesn't have the proximity to a life um, that avails them to crime, right? That is that is the appropriate response. But yet in this country, we continue to choose to do everything except fund the things that will make better citizens, right. more citizens. I absolutely agree with you. I think that, you know, um, I was just reading a editorial in the USA Today where they talked about treating um, gun violence as a public health issue. And um, within public health, we have behavioral health, we have mental health, we have, you know, the overrepresentation of certain people in um, the foster care system. We have neighborhoods where you have so much brokenness and so many unaddressed multi intergenerational issues that you've got to get to that. Um, so I absolutely agree with that. I think it's also a gun issue, right? We've got to get as many guns as possible off the streets. At the same time, we've got to do something about the people who are already killing people and try to protect people from them. So I think it's not either or, it's yes and, because the people who are killing people are probably not going to be benefit from some of these programs we talked about. We don't like talking about that, but I think that you have people who are caught up in a way of life who need to somehow be redirected at the very least. And I believe that the, um, the program, this Project Safe Neighborhoods is more comprehensive than just criminal justice. Um, but I think- But do we think though, just, this is just a question. Y'all know I like to ask questions. Do we think that uh, this, this kind of technology and this kind of uh, prosecutorial dis discretion will curb? Is this something that criminals are thinking about uh, when they want to engage in criminal behavior, huh. uh, U.S. Attorney Isom, go come get me. Kim Worthy, go. You know, I'm like, is, I, does I that work? It, was, it helps you apprehend those people who are shooting, right? Um, so I don't know if these things are true, but what I did see in the statistics are in the ninth precinct there were 50 homicides in 2020, the most for any precinct, and yeah, in 2021 there were 42. So that's yeah, a drop. That's high. And in the eighth precinct there were 43 in 2020, and 20 and in 2021 there were 21. So you do see a reduction at a time where crime. It's a small reduction, though. Well, you know, at the end of the eighth precinct is half. It's a 50% reduction. So that's not that insignificant. Um, I think any reduction is significant. I don't know that that works, but I think that we sometimes have a way of saying either, either we only care about um, public health or we only care about criminal justice. And I think we need to balance um, because the reality is if I'm living there and my 11-year-old child, there should never be a community in this nation where an 11-year-old child cannot sleep. Now, what Dawn Eisen also talks about, and not in this article, is about the need to also improve accountability for police officers to improve policing and also to improve civil rights. So I think that this is just one potential tool. Um, if Kevin had not received the news yesterday that his 11-year-old cousin died in her bed, we didn't know that she was 11. My she God. She was 11 years old and My she goodness. died in her bed in her grandmother's house. Somebody's shooting in the back of the house. Um, yes, we need all of these other things. But, you know, for those families who are losing relatives, we also need to deal with the people who are shooting, the guns and the shooters. Not to throw them away, not to criminalize them forever, but to say that we've got to stop you from doing this. Yeah. Um, uh, U.S. Attorney Don Eisen, you have an open invitation to 
authentically Detroit. I know that's promised, your friend. She's promised that she's going to come on here. I mean, she's not only my friend, she's my sister's good friend. And yeah. so um, they worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office for um, many years together, very closely. Um, and she prosecuted a lot of major crimes. And so, you know, she was breaking up syndicates of crime that I don't think are necessarily amenable to a lot of the social solutions. Do we need to invest those inside of our prisons to rehabilitate people once they get there? Yes. But do we have to, we have to acknowledge that people's lives are more endangered when some people have not been, you know, their needs have not been addressed. Long-term, yeah. we've got to do everything John talked about. We have got to invest in a social mm -hmm. system that produces healthy, well-balanced citizens and stop traumatizing people to the point where sometimes they get involved in negative behavior. Yeah. But or, in the meantime, or, or, or not only get involved with, they are desensitized to. Yes. They are desensitized to the behavior um, that where they live and what they see perpetuates. Yep. Absolutely. And so resensitizing people, and there's people, I've seen people whose lives have been turned around. I know people, you know people whose lives have been turned around. And we need to put those people at the forefront of the efforts to figure out how to reach some of the people who have been desensitized and whose minds have not been uh, properly, you know, who, who just been damaged. Because this is damage that causes people to do that. Anyway, um, I, it's just one of those stories that to me is very nuanced. And is, we tend to get on nuanced. either side of the issue, but the reality is people are dying. Absolutely. And Detroiters are experiencing this in a nonlinear way. It's not either or. It is It is all of what we have discussed. Yeah. That's going to wrap up Hot Takes. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Candidate for the congressional seat in the 13th district, John Conyers, is with us here on Authentically Detroit, and we're excited to talk to him about his candidacy. John, you know, uh, we're, we'll start off easy, and it'll get maybe a little tougher as we go on. Tell us why. Tell us why you decided to run for office. Um, ran for a few reasons, but I think that you know Detroit and this district in general needs uh, a representative that has the institutional knowledge to get the job done. I think we need leadership that um, understands how far this district has come. Uh, being a lifetime, lifelong Detroiter, I understand and all everybody on this podcast has been here through the good times, the bad, and now the good again. Um, and so I think we need someone that can give an authentic voice to this district and as well as the city of Detroit in Washington. Um, yeah, I think, I think those were, you know, my, my main priorities to give uh, uh, an authentic perspective uh, on this district uh, and its needs and also having someone that has the institutional knowledge of that body. Uh, and I was blessed to grow up um, under the longest serving black American congressman in US history and learn how dean, to do right? that. Was yeah. he the, they call him the dean, right? Yes, he is the first ever black dean of the United States House. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, so you know, you you had that privilege, and some people will actually question that, though, and throw that, turn that around on you, sure, and say that that's nepotism, and um, is it fair? So I think the question that some people have is, what makes you uniquely qualified to run for this office? Because um, um, there are several other people who will say that they are authentic voices in this community. Sure, I mean. We could talk about that. Let's take my dad out of the picture. Let's just just talk about my mother's side of the family. 
the year that my father died, I had two cousins killed. Uh, we speaking, we're speaking about gun violence. I'm not speaking hypothetically. I'm not speaking from a place of, um, you know, utopia or or solutions that I that I have not hit me close to home. Two cousins that I grew up with were both murdered. Uh, one of whom was murdered violently, and they had to, when he was in his casket, he they had to put a plate on his chest um, so that he could be full. Um, so that's just, for me, this is a lived experience in terms of speaking to what is happening in the city of Detroit. Beyond that, uh, I am the child of an incarcerated parent. So when we're talking about giving unique, uniquely qualified and authentic voices in the city of Detroit, uh, I don't know how many of the other candidates can speak to the sacrifice of having to leave school to come home and be present for your family, to be supportive of your family, uh, and the sacrifice, um, that, that you know, that that is, right? I don't know how many of them can speak to that and what uh, young people go through. Granted, I was 19 when it happened to me. So I can only imagine what it's like for someone like the kids I saw today um, at, at Dove Academy when I, you know, asked them to raise their hand just to connect with them. Like, hey, how many of you uh, have a parent that went to prison? How many of you have a family member that went to prison? Um, so I don't know how many of them can speak to that, but that's certainly something that uh, all those sixth, seventh, and eighth graders that I spoke to today uh, and people that may be listening right now, I'm sure they can speak to, and I'm sure that uh, they would love to um, see someone reintroduce uh, the Beyond Bars Act, which would provide funding uh, for uh, children of incarcerated parents to go visit their, visit their um, government funding, I should say, uh, for children of incarcerated parents to go visit their, uh, their parents in prison, um, which I can speak to, speak directly to the challenge that, uh, that we face when trying to go see our parents. Mm. Oh, that just, uh, I had to take a breath on that one because um, I don't think that anybody really thought about it. You had a, you have a younger brother. Correct. And so um, that impacted not just you, but how old was your younger brother when? Um, 14. 14 years old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People love to talk about, you know, it's nepotism and I can go, I can go into a whole thing about how uh, black people are the only people that love to win when there is a, a quote unquote line <laughs> of discussion, we love to tear each other down when it's uh, when someone has been groomed for something. But uh, but just specifically speaking to my experience um, and unique qualifications, again, I'm a child of an incarcerated parent and I had to leave school, come home to take care of my little brother, to be there while my mother was in prison. So we can we can I would love to we, I, people love to focus on my dad, the dad part. But I, I've, I've yet to be asked about that part. So living, so living with, you know, that kind of injustice and imbalance in systems, um, and that's one thing that, you know, you want to turn into uh, legislation. Um, how, how else does your experience translate to, uh, you know, a legislative policy agenda? What else are you thinking about? Um, you know, I think, first of all, when we talk about when I speak to institutional knowledge, um, it's funny. Uh, in, in light of Ukraine, someone sent me a picture of myself, um, my father, and Jim Sensenbrenner, representative from Wisconsin. Uh, and they passed, in 2015, there was a piece of legislation that they passed to make sure that the Azov Battalion, which is a, a far-right group, did not receive federal government funding, funding uh, from the United States. Um, and that was one of the very, you know, one of the last pieces of bipartisan legislation. Uh, and so one of the things that I have, again, institutional knowledge of is how to get those things done. My father taught me how to build coalitions, not only uh, amongst your peers uh, in the United States Congress, but also around the country uh, with uh, leaders on, on issues and how to galvanize them 
to um, agitate with their elected officials so that you can build a consensus and, a mo and momentum on the Hill for whatever you're trying to pass. Um, issues that are important to me, uh, affordable housing, um, obviously uh, SSDI, social security disability income, um, you know, our seniors are faced with tremendous amount of challenge. Not, not, and not just our seniors, but just citizens of this district. The median income of this district uh, after taxes is $26,000, uh, while the median rent is $1,100. Uh, HUD defines affordable housing as 30% or less. Uh, $1,100 a month of $26,000 um, is 54% of, of your income. So there are a tremendous amount of fixes that need to uh, happen. And going back to, um, my point about seniors and SSDI and why I brought up the 26,000 is that when our seniors, you know, they're getting, they're on a fixed income, inflation's ramping up, right? Uh, cost of living is ramping up. The most anyone can get if you're on SSDI is $25,350. That is below the median income of the city of Detroit. And most people, and that's if you're getting max benefits at $2,000 a month, when most people aren't getting that. Um, and so again, institutional knowledge, when we're thinking about our seniors, having relationships with someone like a Marsha Fudge, um, who has been in, integral in my life and uh, giving me a tremendous amount of advice, working with her as a secretary of HUD to figure out what we can do for not only, you know, uh, our citizens that are at that median income level, but our seniors whose social security benefits are not increasing while the cost of living is. I have a question um, related to that. Um, a lot of people have talked about um, uh, restoring public housing. And um, I think that many people know that public housing was uh, really decimated by Hope Six and this idea that um, poor people should not all live together. And therefore we're going to deconcentrate poverty by eliminating um, you know, public housing and poor people are still concentrated in poor communities. We didn't deconcentrate poverty, but what we did was we um, deconcentrated housing for poor people such that we have just a tremendously um, growing homelessness population. Where do you stand on public housing? Mm, well, I can speak to affordable housing. Uh, I hadn't really looked into uh, public housing. As it relates to affordable housing, I know that what I would like to do um, is work with uh, increase work to increase um, HUD funding in the 13th district um, to preserve our existing preserve and upgrade our existing housing stock um, and creating tax incentives uh, for new uh, home buyers. Um, in addition to that, making it so that, you know, it's right now, it's not feasible um, to your point about uh, public housing. It's not, it's not a feasible uh, on the affordability side for landlords to have affordable housing units in their, um, in their new developments. So figuring out how we can work with HUD to kind of bridge that gap so that to the point of uh, th that you made, how we can get folks into better living situations. Um, as it relates to homelessness, I think Part of the homelessness issue is uh, also a mental health crisis. And when we to circle back to the very, very beginning to hot takes, we're gonna talk about funding, social programs, right? We have, we, right now, when I ran in 2018, there were four uh, public uh, mental health facilities in the city of Detroit. Now there are only three, right? Having places for people to go that, because part of our homelessness, homeless population is, 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 is are people with mental health crisis. Well, that, that's, but that, you know, that used to be a large part. And as we move on, 
Homelessness includes people who are not just sleeping on the streets, but people who are doubled up or tripled up in housing. There are a number of people who are about to lose or just lost hotel benefits where they were being kept in hotels because they no longer had physical access to housing. There's a straight up shortage. We work with a teenager um, who is living with her grandmother who's 74 years old and two adult siblings. And they were homeless. So for a while, she just was couch surfing and there's no mental health issue there. Parents are not available. We talk about mass incarceration and you brought this up, right? And so when you have mass incarceration, you have the removal of parents, right? So it's not just visiting your parents, it's actually having a place to call home. And my question to you is this, there's no way anybody running for office can know all of these things. There's many of us who are working in the field. What is your thought around how you will work with organizations like mine and many others to become more sensitized and aware of what's happening inside of our neighborhoods? And how do you see that playing into a policy platform? Well, it's funny you mentioned that uh, because I was at an event at the Ruth Ellis Center and they do transition housing, transition housing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that for me, um, I would like to part of my part of what I hope will become my job is to amplify the leaders in the field like yourself um, who have the knowledge that can guide me and and, and advise me on how to uh, best create policy that will affect change, affect the most change. Um, so I would love to talk with you more about that and, and, and policy fixes that you that you see um, and that you think, you know, our, our community will be best served with. I want to talk to you about, uh, you know, traditionally, uh, at least for the, the last half century, the 13th congressional seat has been represented by uh, an African-American, um, your father, and uh, with uh, Brenda Lawrence um, stepping down, there is, you know, this this conversation around uh, Michigan needing Black representation um, in Congress, especially if you're going to represent uh, a swath that includes the city of Detroit. Where do you stand on that? Well, I would say first and foremost that all skin folk and kin folk. Turn the blog button somewhere, Orlando. We I said, is there an applause button somewhere? I need an applause button right there. He said, first of all, huh? Okay. All skin folk ain't kin folk. Speaking of that, uh, you know, there's a gentleman in this race who claims to be very pro-black, has endorsed a white woman that is running for state senate, uh, and got out of a race when he could be representing black people on on the state floor, uh, on in, in the state senate. So, you know. We talk when we talk about representation, removing yourself from the possibility of continuing to represent black people and be a voice for black people on the state level. Uh, I think that's kind of contradictory, but be, be that as it may. Um, um, your question about how I feel about black representation, the need for it is absolutely necessary. I think, um, again, to unique qualifications, I think what I tell people all the time is that um, you know, my father was born in 1929, right? So he comes from, he's a child of the silent generation, uh, born in the Great Depression. Um, when it comes to poverty, uh, not only, it wasn't about black or white, people just didn't have any money, right? And then I have a mother who was born much later, came up, came of age in the middle of the crack, crack epidemic, uh, the proliferation of the gun violence that we see today, the advent, I should say, of that Right, so I have this. I have this perspective. So as it relates to black representation, I think we need black representation that understands the experience of holistically the experience of uh, Detroit uh, from past to present, uh, and that can speak 
um, meaningfully and experientially to what the people of this district, uh, specifically Detroiters, go through. I think that is that is vitally important. Um, there are people that went that I went to high school with at Renaissance that are not black that I know could speak to that experience. Uh, maybe not to the race part, but they can speak uh, to the majority of what it means to be a Detroiter. Um, I say all that to say I think representation um, as it relates to race is important, but I think authentic representation and advocacy uh, is the is the most important thing. So you came on here, you're just going to use the word authentic, knowing that we love that word, we right? We love that word here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what are the top needs of the 13th district and what is the role of the Congress person in meeting those needs? Say that one more time. What are the top needs of our district, 13th district, and what is the role of the Congress person in meeting those needs? Mm, interesting question. I think obviously, um, affordable housing, as I've already said, is very, very important to me. I think one thing that's really overlooked um, is climate justice. I think when we look, one of the thing, one of these places that we have in this district is Delray, Southwest Detroit, um, and the constant and consistent emissions violations of Marathon Petroleum. Um, I think that is something that we don't talk about enough within this district is the need for climate justice, climate advocacy, um, and environmental health and environmental justice advocacy, right? Those things, those things are vital. Um, we go on about education. Um, I want to advocate for reparations. Um, you know, that's something that is very, very important to me. Um, universal health care, I think as, as this country shifts and continues to move towards automation and fewer and fewer jobs are existing that the, you know, that you don't need a major education or, oh, excuse me one second. Okay, so you know we don't like um, blind spots, so we're just going to. Yeah, you know, you know no, it's okay. Um, but you know, uh, our infrastructure. Uh, um, obviously, I think I already said affordable housing, jobs. Um, yeah, there's, there's a tremendous amount that this this community needs. Um, you know, I, I look forward to working with um, the Michigan delegation to to work out. Um, you know, especially my counterpart, whoever whoever I whoever I hope will become my counterpart from the twelfth to really work on holistically the needs of Detroit. Orlando's um, muted, so I'll just ask this question. How would you rate the current representation of the 13th district oh, and what would you think? Y'all trying to get me in trouble. Y'all trying to get me in trouble, man. These, these are standard <laughs> questions, so you get to answer it. These are our standards. Um, you know. I think I think our current representation is quite vocal uh, in their advocacy for the issues that they feel are important. Climate justice, environmental justice, housing, build back better. I thought that person didn't vote on build back better. Well, you know, they actually held a rally with Bernie Sanders and um, what is her name? Oh my goodness, why can't I think of her name? Um, from uh, but, but when it was time to vote. But when Debbie it was time Dingle. Vote, Debbie Dingle, thank you, Orlando. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not defending. I'm just saying that these are the issues that have been weighed in on and actually dollars have been brought to our district in that regard. So you're talking about a vote. I mean, but part, so yeah, I'm talking about a vote, which is their job to vote on the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, that's part of the job. And there is no legitimate reason uh, not to 
support Build Back Better. And now well, we don't, I mean, you know, one of the questions and as and I said, I, issues, think, I think I think that one of the I, issues at stake, I want to go back to this, though, because a lot of the things you state as your agenda are actually seem to be the agenda in the current 13th district, quite honestly. And mm -hmm. we've worked closely with this person. Now, one group of people believe that we need to try to get beyond. We didn't get build back better. We had an infrastructure bill. Build it was back the infrastructure bill that she it, didn't vote for. She didn't vote for the infrastructure yeah. bill. The reality is that build back better was being held up by Mansion and Sistema. And she <laughs> believed- Cinema. <laughs> Cinema. Oh my goodness. I'm Okay, work with me. I told you about COVID. It's whatever. But Nance, uh, Mansion and Cinema, it was being held up by them, right? And so the thought that some people had was if you vote for the infrastructure bill without mandating some aspects of Build Back Better, it'll never come to pass. Infrastructure bill won overwhelmingly, but Build Back Better is DOA. So do you think that in retrospect, there was a need for better negotiation on the part of the um, uh, uh, Congress to make more demands of our Republican leaning Democrats in the Senate? Oh, I think, again, when we talk about strategy, when we talk about when we talk about political strategy and being, um, you know, a political operative, if you recognize everything doesn't have to be done in one fell swoop. I think part of the problem was that they kept trying to do everything in one fell swoop. It's okay to do things little by little, bit by bit. My dad taught me that. That's how I was able to be so effective over the years. Everything doesn't have to happen all at once. Joe Biden has four, he, he has four years to get the job done. And now to your point, it's DOA. And now we have to, now we're two years in and we're trying to figure it out. But that's, it's not DOA because of them. It's not DOA because of those, not, that no vote. It's DOA because of Mansion and Cinema, right? I wasn't saying that it was DOA no. because of a no vote. I'm saying it's DOA because now he has to come back to the drawing board with something different instead of breaking it up. Mm. The, from the you're, saying. you're saying that you think it was bad political strategy to put everything in there in the first place? Correct. Okay. I mean, when can we get beyond though the political strategy of incrementalism and produce wide ranging get we'll get the money out of politics get citizens united out of politics you want to talk about let's talk about it my i remember very vividly when my father was very very vocal to me as a young man about how terrible a decision the supreme court decision was for citizens united if you want to if you want to get back to people not being beholden to uh to corporate interests if you want to get back to republicans and democrats working across the aisle let's get the money out of politics that's on both sides of the aisle I'm glad you brought up money because I want we wanted to add, we've been asking this question too for to all of the candidates. Uh, last time we checked, you did not file your campaign finance reports for the first quarter. I absolutely filed mine. When did you check? But you I, filed them late. Okay. So how how how's fundraising going? We raised sixty k. Uh, Thirty of that is my money. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. Granted, I have the benefit of a name, but I know yeah. what to do with the money and I know where to put the money. So, you know, I know how to put it to use. And that's what matters most. My dad, when he ran, he didn't have very much. I, he didn't have he didn't have very much money um, as I, I was just actually with his campaign, his first campaign manager. Um, and he wow. said, we didn't have any money? We had peanuts. Wow. You know, we just had people that were invested, that believed in what he could do. Uh, and that's the same thing for me. I think that, again, to the earlier point that we talked about, uh, people not being supportive of certain legacy candidates or, or whatever their reasoning may be. I don't want to get into uh, whatever strings may be pulled, being pulled behind the scenes for whatever candidates and what the reason is for that. 
but yeah, that's that that's kind of you know that's what's going on, and so well, we'll see. What it happens looks like it looks like though, I'm looking at poll numbers. Um, you seem to be polling fairly well in comparison. He's polling to very well with more money, isn't that true? Last I heard. Okay, I heard. <laughs> <laughs> your your dad was um, one of the oldest members of Congress. We talked about that. He was the dean. Um, but do you think that there is a need for younger leadership in Congress? And if so, why? Well, that it, why the average age of a congressperson is nearly sixty. It's fifty-seven and a half years old. That's not represented. I mean, listen, we got a bunch of millennials out here that have, we've faced what two recessions, a housing crisis. Man, we've been through it. Ooh. We we are the we are the first generation where our jobs our job prospects and our life expectancy is less than that of our parents. Listen, I think that is it's high time that we are able to represent our own interests and the interests of future generations in Congress. Um, I think that's just uh, it gets a no brainer. You get no argument here. You ain't getting no um, argument from me on here. that either. I'm, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> um, listen, because I, I, I honestly believe that, you know, if those issues, part of representation is that you are experiencing things and you look at the world a certain way. And there's no way even well-meaning people after a certain age can really understand um, the, the perspectives of younger people. And when you have only a few people making those decisions, then you're disempowering a whole generation. And it makes no sense to me. I mean, one thing I'll speak to uh, that, it's also part of why I ran is, you know, I watched the Facebook hearings and I forget which congressman, it was a man, uh, an, an older an older white man that fundamentally didn't understand what encryption, end-to-end encryption was. He was asking questions about WhatsApp. And if these people are holding hearings for, you know, the standard oils of our time and they don't understand what the standard oil, oil of our time is actually trading on or trading with what their actual business platform is, then how can you keep me safe? How can you protect my interests if you don't know what to ask? He asked a question, Mark Zuckerberg said one thing, and he should have had a follow-up question, but, be, but because he fundamentally didn't understand encryption, he could not ask a follow-up question, and therefore he could not represent, because as a congressperson, your, your interests, yes, I represent the 13th district, but I also am going to the United States Congress to make decisions for the betterment of the entire United States of America. So if you cannot make a decision that will, that is for the betterment of not only your district, but this entirety of the United States, how can you, how can you be effective in your role? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a, um, an important point. I was um, joking around with my husband that there is as much difference now between 1972 and 2022 as there was between 1972 <laughs> and 1922. And it's like, woo, that's well, when you- Speaking, that's when speaking you about feel, the 70s. That's, that's so, when you feel old though. Yes, because so much is I mean, you know, not you, but me, because, you know, (laughs) when I was when I was 1922 was like, you know, you didn't even have television. okay? you didn't have color TV. There's so much you didn't have. And when I was a kid, you didn't have the Internet. You didn't have so many things. Encryption was something that you could not. That's maybe something spies worked with. And Mm -hmm. now it is something that is part of our everyday lexicon. And some of us, and I consider myself to be, you know, a little techier than a lot of people my age, have learned to adapt with the times, but there's still limits, you mm-hmm. know. And 
So anyway, go on and talk about the 1970s when I was. I was going to, you were, Donna, you were there in the 1970s. I was. I was. Like, I was, you know, uh, I was like a teenager. Court. I was a Supreme teenager in the 70s. <laughs> the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade came in the 1970s. Oh, yeah, let's talk about it. Oh, yeah, I was waiting for this one. Well, you know, oh. you know, my, my journalistic instinct, I was like, that's a great follow-up. So uh, yeah. right now, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about the leak uh, Supreme Court opinion that, you know, reverses uh, the road decision what what is at stake from your vantage point john if uh row fails a tremendous amount um first of all i find it ironic that the party of lim- the party of limited government um is now <laughs> to have government mandated pregnancies uh so that's first and foremost and i think that as as a, a pro-choice uh candidate um and as a pro-choice man, I think that is a, it is very important that as a, as people that are pro-choice, we continue to use the phrase "government mandated pregnancy" to mm. really just fly the flag in their face of what they are actually uh, asking of women mm. or forcing upon women. Now, as it relates to the decision uh, that is, I guess, the impending Roe v. overturn of uh, Roe v. Wade, the basis for that for them to overturn that is that it is not a historical right, and one of the and one of the um, briefs, the, the basis for that is that it's not a historical right of the Constitution. So therefore, by that measure, uh, civil rights, uh, some civil right. rights are up for grabs, voting right. rights are up for, up for grabs, right. Right. right to vote is up for grabs, same-sex marriage is up for grabs, interracial marriage is up for grabs, because these things are not historical rights of the Constitution. Um, and we're, it's, it, we're on a slippery slope. It's, it's it, truly dangerous footing. And so I think, again, why we need young people to be in office, and these are things that we care about, but not only that, we want to give voice to and, and advocate and truly fight for the six, I think it's 60, was it, 63 or 68% of Americans that think that uh, Roe v, or no, that's, I'm speaking about gun violence, I think it's 50 some odd percent uh, that think that Roe should stay as it is. Um, so I think uh, men and the government should not be meddling uh, in with women's bodies. Uh, and women should have full say and full control over their bodies and what uh, happens with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the things people don't point out is that um, these laws, a lot of times, will be used to punish women who have miscarriages. Yep, it's, it's already happening. Um, it's, it's, already it's already happening. happening in some states. That's right, it's happening in Texas, it's happening in some southern states. Um, if you are banning um, anything at, after conception, you're talking about birth control, you're talking about IUDs, you're talking about various um, forms of birth control, which, you know, really stop the egg from being implanted. And so the slippery slope is beyond not just civil rights and other rights, but it's also bodily autonomy for women in all ways. It is, there are women who use birth control to um to address diseases and so when you start talking about it even if you were a person who believed that life begins at conception and you know fetuses are people and their lives should be protected without having those arguments what you're really talking about is endangering the lives of grown women in addition to all of the things that you mentioned and i agree with you government mandated pregnancies is great language that is amazing language i'm gonna i'm I'm gonna you'll hear that one again yeah we'll cite the source I'll support, I'm supportive of the Women's Health Act. Um, that's something that absolutely needs to pass. Um, listen, I, 
I agree with you. Women's bodily autonomy is something that I think should be non-negotiable. I think what's also what also should be non-negotiable at this juncture. Um, and, and again, this this is the party of the Constitution. Well, there is no. It says God. It doesn't say which God because in different religions, the the life begins at different points. Correct. Right. So it doesn't say which God in the Constitution. It says just says God. One country. You know. You understand what I'm saying. So for them to impose. Uh, the religious views of Christianity, which I'm a Christian, but there's supposed to be a separation of church and state. That is why this country was founded. This country was founded by Protestants running from uh, the from the king, right? So that we are- immediately came over here and used religion to oppress other people. So I think that there's some contradictions that are foundational to this nation, although I agree with you that separation of church and state should exist. Um, but I do also think that sometimes we overstate that case um, because certainly um, that was used to um, to justify the genocide against Native Americans and African Americans and slave trade. So unfortunately, we have um, a history that has steeped in the kind of blood, you know, that we need to address. And I agree with you also that we need to move forward, not backwards. Um, can you talk a little bit about legacy and what it would be like to uplift your father's tenure? Why is that important? Um. And I'm, I'm saying legacy from not the nepotism standpoint, but a lot of us do think that our legacy is important. So I'm not, this is not a negative question. No, no, no I, I don't take it. I, I, I want to say this in a way that um, I hope is not misinterpreted, but is it, say it in a way that it was explained to me um, is that I don't really think about that. If I'm being quite honest, my father made it very clear to me at a very early age of like, I can't be him. And then I should do my best to be whoever I am and live fully in my independence and, and, and who I am as, as John Conyers, um, the third, because I'm not, you know, I can't be him, right? I, I, I say that contradicting what I've said first as like, I am, I am the third iteration of that, uh, of with that name. And so I'm fundamentally different from his father who really laid the foundation, who to me, uh, if you want to talk about legacy and why I'm doing it, I do it more, so much, I shouldn't say so much more for, but um, with my grandfather in mind, um, in many respects more than my father, simply because my grandfather gets overlooked uh, because my father was in office so long. Um, you know, uh, in the, I'm, I'm working on um, a book about my father and our time together. Um, but in the process of that, while my father was still alive, looking up articles about my grandfather and how Coleman, Mayor Coleman Young spoke about how he learned so much from my grandfather. There's an article, I think, in the Free Press or the Detroit News uh, from the 80s when my grandfather passed away. And my grandfather being so inter an integral part of uh, the UAW movement or, or uh, you know, us being the first black uh, Ford dealership in the city, in, in the state of Michigan, I think might have been in the country. But in whichever case, the things that my grandfather with only a third grade education was able to do coming up from Monroe, Georgia, right, um, as the as the son of a sharecropper like that to me is, you know, that is the leg when we talk about legacy continuing not letting not he worked very hard for my uncle Nate and for my grandmother Lucille and my father uh, and his other children for me to allow what the foundation that he laid um, to go away. I think to me that would be the the greater injustice. I mean, I, I'm not saying this to to dismiss my father, but my father made it very clear to me early on that it is up to me to be my own person. And actually, my arrival, my dad never pushed me to run for office. My arrival to running office came completely independent of you know, um, my dad's persuasion. I was, I was in other fields and, and, and thinking about other things. And this, this was more of a, 
I have benefited so much. My the life that I have been blessed with is only because of the citizens of the 13th congressional district. Um, and for me to uh, keep those things for myself or for our family and not come back and serve and not avail these resources to the people, I think that would be that would be a betrayal of the legacy if more than anything. Uh, we we give all of the candidates an opportunity to list uh, your endorsements. Uh, who who have you secured to endorse you? Uh, SCLC of Detroit. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Wayne County shares retirees. Um, am I missing some? I think I'm missing some. Um, but yeah, I mean, endorsements don't vote. I know. <laughs> I read, I read in the paper, though, that you were endorsed by... Oh, yes. The families. I'm sorry. The families of Breonna Taylor, Ralph... Uh, Bre I don't know how. It's yeah. It's in my head. Now, it's a lot going on. Charges in my head, not my heart. The no, families no. of Breonna Taylor, uh, Jacob Blake, um, Ralph Gobby. Um, but I think in, at the end of the day, like, I, oh, those things do mean a lot yeah. to me. Oh, my father endorsed me in 2018. So I think that I'm pretty sure that still stands. Um, <laughs> um, um, which that one meant the most to me. But I think that at the end of the day, when my dad ran, he didn't get many endorsements. Everybody wanted Dick Austin to win. Dick Austin was a front runner. Uh, so, you know, that's fine. That's cool. You got to do the work. My dad taught me. Two people talked to me. My father talked to me. And the president of the team, which was Kevin Moore, talked to me. Kevin Moore just talked to me a few months ago. He said, you know, the reason why I loved your dad is because he wasn't afraid to work. He and I would go door to door. We would walk door to door and we would make it happen. If you want to win, you got to put boots on the ground. You got to do the work. My dad told me the same thing. I just posted on my Instagram not long ago. The reason why me, he told me, me, the reason why many of my peers can't get reelected or are not long for this job because they aren't, they're afraid to do the work. Being a congressman and being a candidate are not the same job. Campaigning mm. and being a congressman, they're not the same job. You got to be able to do both and you have to be able to do both well. Um, and, and, and you don't have to raise a lot of money to show up. Showing up, it don't take a lot to show up. You got to wake up. You got to know what you're talking about. You got to know what the issues are. You got to know what you care about. And you got to be a willing listener. You got to listen to the people and what their needs are and what they care about. That's what this job is. All right, y'all. That's John Conyers, candidate for the 13th congressional seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. It's time for us to go. But first, we're going to do shout outs. So, John, at the end of every episode, we shout out people who we want uh, to put on platform and love on, whatever. So, Donna, you got shout outs? Um, shout out to ECM. Man, great um, event. Thing on Saturday, uh, I was just so proud. I'm always so proud to lead um, such an amazing organization. I want to shout out a couple board members. Um, you, of course, but also Charles Walker and Greg Donnelly, who show up all of the time, rolling up their sleeves and putting, talking about doing the work. Doing that work is really um, so meaningful to me. And then um, honoring Marlo would mean nothing without his children, his wife, his mother, his sister, and his brother there to honor him with us. Yeah. Um, and to have them sitting in the front row, standing there honoring us, I'm telling you, I was sick and I was like, I have to be there because this is a labor of love. A year ago on January, June 4th, I announced it publicly, this is what we we're going to do. And one year later, here we all are celebrating and loving on Marlo. So, you know, those are my shout outs. 
Uh, I want to shout out uh, the slate of interviewees we had in Mackinac. Uh, Charity Dean, Latrice McClendon, Michael Griffey, Darnell Adams, Camille Walker-Banks, Antoine Bryant, Kirk Mays, Letitia Johnson, Angelique Power, uh, Jeremiah Steen, and uh, Logan Newman, and Mohamed Mutakim. All of you all uh, were really, really generous with your time. We know that it was a lot. And so to our listeners, we will be dropping our uh, Mackinac series later on this week as well. So make sure you uh, stay tuned for that. But shout out to everybody. It was a black slate of amazing people. And we were happy that we had an all black slate of interviews <laughs> in Mackinac. So yeah. John, you got any shout outs? Anybody want to shout out? Yes, yeah, Pride Month. Uh, so I want to shout out the Root Ellis Center, uh, all the hard work they're doing to help uh, uh, members of the LGBTQ community, young people to, you know, whether that is, you know, transitional housing, um, finding jobs, the, the, all the work they do with the Root Ellis Center is incredible. LGBT mobilization, uh, LGBT trade mobilization, I should say. Um, also want to shout out uh, two more things. My mother, I know we got to go. My mother and her fight, I think this ex post facto law uh, well, ex post facto is, is something that's on the books where you cannot make a law that retroactively punishes someone, right? So that is what she's dealing with. That's what she's fighting fighting for and fighting for all uh, formerly incarcerated people to be able to come back to come back home and participate in society fully. Uh, and the second thing I forgot to mention when we're talking about platform is the, the importance of mental health. Um, there's something that we should all be uh, fighting for right now to get more funding towards. And that is, and one thing I would like to go to DC to fight for is the funding of the mental health hotline 988 uh, under the National Suicide Prevention Hotline Designation Act. That's something that is super, super important for this country. Uh, when we talk about gun deaths at the hands of police, having a dedicated hotline that is strictly and just for mental health uh, crisis um, will certainly help uh, reduce the, the interaction, the unnecessary police interaction with people that are having mental health crisis. So I wanna shout out 988 um, as, that, as we prepare for that to come online in July. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you, Donna. Listen, we'll see you same time next week. Until then, we want you to catch the wave. <laughs>